Welcome to the MBA series. This is a special multi-part series within Next Economy Now. We are going to review the arc of the learning journey that is presented in the Next Economy MBA online course. We are open sourcing the content from our course and hope to share it in this shorter, bite-sized format. We are launching this series because we were asked to do it by listeners like you. We're also doing it because we are writing a book entitled The Next Economy MBA, Redesigning Business for the Benefit of All Life, which will be published on May 23rd, 2023 by Barrett Kohler Publishers. This is a sizable series. There will eventually be 18 podcast episodes of course content and nine interviews with MBA alumni. We will be rotating every other week with our normal Next Economy Now interview format. We hope you enjoy it. Please reach out to us via our website, lifteconomy.com, with any comments, feedback, or requests. And now, on with the show. Yay, Phoenix. I'm so glad to be here with you on this conversation around the next economy and continuing from the conversation we had, Kevin and I had chatted last time and, you know, we talked about this vision of a next economy that works for everyone with no one left out. But today we want to unpack a little bit what's stopping that vision from happening because <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Thank you for being here. Yeah. And I think what's important is that before you can talk about what works, you have to have a shared idea of, of what perspective you're coming from and what are the shared values. Yeah. Because otherwise it's, it might not make sense. Like, I mean, what isn't working and what the cause of what isn't working is something that's hotly debated. Yeah. <laughs> And we have an opinion. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So well said. I mean, sometimes it's hard to kind of sit in the discomfort of rehashing all the different things that are broken. But I totally agree with you, Phoenix, that sometimes we get in conversations with people and they're adamant that there's this one cause that's the core problem. And you and I are sitting there shaking our heads and saying, wait a second, what about structural racism, structural sexism, wealth inequality? Those those are the, the root causes, if you will. Yeah, it's just true. So what is it that you think out of the many is one of the root causes of our predicament? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's so many places to begin. I, I already mentioned structural racism, structural sexism, and I don't want to discount any of those. So we'll talk about this list as sort of a laundry list in no particular hierarchical order. <laughs> but one thing that we see that is a big trap, if you will, or a, a, or a core problem around how the economy operates right now is money as being the primary or even in some cases the exclusive ways that people know to meet their human needs. One of the reasons this is a problem is that money globally, the most popular way it's cre it is created globally 
is through a concept called interest-bearing debt. So in other words, money is essentially created in the process of being lent out. So mm-hmm. banks will lend out money to stimulate economic transactions. And when money is created, that debt has to come from somewhere. And it comes yes. out of thin air, but it comes at the cost of exploitation of people and planet. So we think about money as the primary way to meet human needs, people reliant on money that comes with such an extraordinary cost of exploitation. This, this money being the primary or only way to meet human needs is one of those like core problems that we puzzle over a lot in our MBA program and in our consulting work. Yeah. And just to say it a different way in case it helps is that, so if you, because it's focused on debt, what happens is that in order to, you get money and then someone needs to get more of that money. So debt means that so you borrow at $20, you have to get $21. And actually what people are fighting for in their retirement investment accounts and all investment accounts is how to get more interest back. So it's just like, and that interest is representative of more labor. So you get a thousand dollars and then you have to figure out how do you extract from this system a thousand twenty five or a thousand five hundred. And so it's just kind of like this wheel that keeps turning and turning. And there's some great stuff on the internet. Maybe that could be something we could put in the show notes about, you know, where you can find out more. But if you've ever wondered why it's such a rat race, that's one of the ways we're racing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That phenomenon yeah. of creating debt creates this artificial need for growth, continual growth. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like if you, you're always looking for what's that thing that you can put the least amount of money in and get the most amount out. And that's not necessarily how nature always works. <laughs> like soil, you want to feed the soil. You want to sometimes leave it fallow. You want to let it rest. Kind of like the human, you know, you feed it and then it will be there to nurture you. It might, some of the richest soil we have has been nurtured by the earth or sometimes by humans, like actually working to create a better soil and a more mineral and a more rich earth. But what we have with our farm policies and processes right now is that we're just trying to take advantage so much. And it's, it's so then the soil doesn't get to breathe. It doesn't get to, and so then our food has less mineral and less nutrient content um, than it did like 50 or hundred years ago. And it's just continuing. And, you know, we were trying to make a difference with or- organic food, but then what happens is organic food ends up being more expensive. And you actually, you probably have, a, um, you could say more about this because the work you do. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up food Phoenix. Cause that brings up the second piece that we see as a problem, which is kind of a scarcity mindset, if you will, or or like this belief system that there's not enough to go around. Sometimes we call belief systems BS <laughs> for short. <laughs> but really, this is prevalent that and it ties into the problem we just named around money. But we 
predominantly find a myth around statements like, there's not enough food on the planet to feed 7 billion people. And the reality is that many studies have elucidated how we actually produce more calories, twice the number of calories currently on this planet to feed all of humanity. And what is chronically keeping 800 million people hungry today is not a lack of calories. It's actually our economic systems and the distribution systems and the fact that there's money is the kind of the roadblock to accessing calories in many cases or lack of access to healthy intact ecosystems for people to be able to grow their own calories or have their own food sovereignty or war or other there's other factors apart from just do we have enough that is compromising people's ability to feed themselves to have clean water right do you remember what the movie is where they also talk about how much food we throw away into landfills there have been a ton of movies about wasted but yeah yeah wasted the story of food Mm, waste yeah because of our economic system yeah we'll throw away food so that we can keep the price point of the food that's sold at a certain level for profit and then you know and then you're you're throwing away food and some and um it's interesting how sometimes people talk about the welfare we give individuals but there's a whole system of giving farmers money not to grow food (laughs) or to Sometimes, yeah, not put food out because it's not economic. It doesn't work for the profit system at that time. I mean, so there's a lot of complexity there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a a lot to take in. But one thing, one way we find it manifesting this mythology of the scarcity of there's not enough to go around in people's lives is, you know, sort of it's a very personal phenomenon where people feel, okay, I have to accumulate wealth. I have to make sure and have enough for myself and my own family. We see this in retirement savings, for example. I have to have enough. I have to have a really robust retirement to take care of myself in my old age because there's not enough to go around. So if shit hits the fan and there's really not enough, I want to at least have enough for me. And I don't know. Would you add anything to that, Phoenix? Yeah. And then, you know, we do have a system. What I mean, there is evidence that the more we have safety net systems, the more we actually, first of all, the less stressed people are, and it tends to support the society as a whole. But also, um, there's something that people, I think you're alluding to, is the stress that it brings into people's lives. Because it's like you go through school and you're being, you're being educated to be a worker, and there's nothing wrong with being taught skills, but how are we doing it? Like, you know, overcrowded schools, this focus on getting good grades rather than Mm -hmm. learning. (laughs) And then people have this sense of their self-worth tied to how well they perform grades and then later how much they make money. And so in the same way we're extracting from the earth, like burning trees, destroying forests so that we can have this product that we can make money off us. We're also treating people the same way. We're The people are stressed and pushing themselves to work harder when the evidence is that the more you work 
like there's a limit. Sure, it's good to work and to work skillfully and smart, but at a certain level, it starts to have diminishing re- rewards. So there's been lots of studies that a four-day work week is better for us than a five-day work week. And the reason we even have a five-day work week is because decades ago, there were people who got together and said, listen, this is not working, working seven days a week. And there was evidence that it's not successful. So News um, Iceland has has experimented and now eight out of 10 people are working a 32-hour week. And California is considering right now some legislation that would require the companies with more than 500 employees to use a four-day work week. And part of it is because there's so much benefit to it in terms of well-being, taking care of yourself. So that's the example of these concepts that we believe and we take we take personally. Like, I'm one of those people. I'm like, oh, how I produce and what I create and what being a good worker becomes part of your identity. And then you actually look deeply into it and you realize, wait a minute, Sure, every once in a while you work late, but if you do that on a regular basis, it has a physical cost, it has a mental cost. There's the fact that, you know, when you don't have time to create human bonds and have time for your family and friends, you're a less well-rounded person, you're less creative, you're less relaxed, you're more brittle inside. All of these things end up creating a society that isn't, I think, what we most would want. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think, too, about another trap we talk about, the kind of fallacy of the meritocratic society or meritocracy. Phoenix, would you want to share a little bit about that? Well, the idea that, you know, that because people are successful, I mean, this is my take on it, and you please tell me your take on it, is that we think, well, people deserve the wealth that they have. And so you walk around um, a city and you see, oh, there's great neighborhoods where it feels very safe and the buildings are well taken care of and the trash is taken. Oh, these. And then there's an association. You can these are good people. And then you go to a neighborhood where things are run down, the trash isn't taken out as regularly. And you're like, these are bad people. Why are they taking care of themselves? And things are run down. And this association, if you just look at it on a surface level, you could just go through your life thinking that it's their these people fault because we have this idea that whatever you have is you individually, your responsibility. But when you look deeper into the system, you realize there's roots and causes. There's a lot of systems, historical systems that create the inequity that we see. So for example, a simple example is redlining. For many years, because of your race, you weren't allowed to live in certain neighborhoods and there were certain, they weren't taken care of. So they didn't have the same sewage and garbage collection that other neighborhoods had because of if it's a neighborhood was designated a black neighborhood or not white, <laughs> then it was treated a certain way. And because, and then the other thing that people don't know is not just that people were prevented, but that people were paid. Like there were certain loans that were very beneficial that were given white people. So it's not just wasn't given to people of color. It's what was given. Like you look at the history of America and there's been lots of times where they're like, all you have to do is go to this place and you'll be given like something, a few acres of land. And at the time, you know, and of course people worked. That's the thing. It's not like people didn't work to make the land what it is. They built houses, they worked on it. They 
But the st- still, that was given to them that you can't, that's part of the story that gets ignored. Yes, there was work done, but then there were other people who were not given that. In fact, they were doing the opposite where they were not given opportunities to do jobs where they could build wealth. So you have this combination of people being given opportunities and working very hard with those opportunities and other people not being given opportunities and actually having things taken away from them and working very hard to try to do what they can. And the difference keeps growing and growing. So then you see a system that looks or, or you see this outward expression of that. And because that's not the history that's told in schools or, or looked at, people can go around thinking, well, those people just don't care and those people just don't work hard because that's the traditional storyline of this country. Could not agree more. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Phoenix. And I think the reason this is so important, I'll just share a tiny, tiny little example to kind of ground this in, for example, how it shows up even in our MBA pricing, for example. So it's like when we have MBA pricing where we offer you know, white folks full price. And then if people of color wish to take us up on this invitation, we offer 50% off the course enrollment as an example. So someone who was really bought in to this myth of meritocracy and really, you know, and a lot of compassion because this myth is all around us, (laughs) but this myth that people have what they have based on their talent, their effort, their achievement, they might say, well, wait a second, that pricing scheme isn't based on talent or effort or achievement. That's just based on, you know, some racial construct. How is that fair? And we would say, well, because we're taking into account like the whole bigger picture of, you know, structural ways that different races in this country have had different opportunities or lack thereof. That might be a really frivolous example, but the myth of meritocracy for me finds its way in so many different conversations and kind of slides in there and actually talking this out and getting on alignment with our MBA community and our clients for me can really help because it helps us get on a similar conversational starting point for how we actually go to solutions, how we talk about changing some of those systemic aspects that we've inherited. You know, it's not, you always say, Phoenix, I love how you put it. We are not responsible for creating all this, but we have the opportunity. We are responsible to do something with it. Oh, I usually say uh, we're not to blame, but we are actually responsible for the change. Like, and it's about, like, we didn't create this, but we have this, yeah, opportunity to make a difference and how we can change it. And if you can think of one right now, I know um, I might be putting you on the spot, but can you think of another historical thing that creates differences? Because I think that's so helpful for people to know that there's some, or maybe we can point people to some, in the show notes, some books that will help people think about things that create um, in Land theft. <laughs> Land theft. Okay you know, colonization, the attempted genocide of indigenous peoples in this country is absolutely a huge piece of what's created inequities, especially in in tribal communities around access to resources. That's a big one that comes to mind. I don't know, was that what you were looking for, Phoenix? 
Yeah. 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 Things you can think of or things that people might not have thought of or know. There's just so many. So many. I mean, another one that comes to mind is just so there's land theft of indigenous peoples, but then there was a tremendous amount of land that freed black folks bought and got access to titles and then it was stolen from them again. And we can maybe link in the show notes to more, but there's a lot of heartbreaking ways that communities have been, have had obstacles or barriers to the same type of ability to provision housing and food and just basic needs in, especially in this country, the United States so-called. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. A a lot of people think that, for example, racism, which isn't the only example of historical inequity, but it's one of the bigger ones. And is that it's mostly a a thing of interpersonal. Whereas, you know, what we know is that there's policies and that have happened for generations of people that hasn't accumulated a result. And if you're constantly looking at things from an individual point of view and you don't look at the history and the forces of the culture and the politics and how they work together to create conditions, then you're not going to see the whole picture. Yeah. 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 I mean, another one that comes to mind hearing you say that is, you know, disability access, you know, different ways that people with differently abled people have been able to access different services over time and also women's rights issues. That's another example that shows up. Well, I want to talk about a couple other kind of challenges that we see to manifesting this beautiful vision of the next economy. Are there any that come up for you that you'd like us to cover? I was wondering if you could speak to the fallacy of progress. Yeah. Yeah. This one is really interesting because what we hear a lot is, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that everything's broken because there are areas where we've had advancements in our ability to, you know, provision healthcare or access, you know, amazing information technology. So what the fallacy of progress is as as we're defining it with our MBA community and in our book that's coming out is how when we kind of generalize or use economic statistics as proof that humanity right now is trending toward continued growth of well-being and prosperity. That was kind of a lot, so I'll unpack it a little bit. Gross domestic product is an economic measurement that gets used so much in our current mainstream culture that it's almost interpreted as a given that gross domestic product or GDP is a quantification of progress for humanity. But the reality is it doesn't tell the whole story. So gross national product, there's this very famous quote from Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, where, you know, gross national product, you know, cigarette advertising increases GDP ambulances increases GDP. Destruction of redwoods increases GDP. So he has this, you know, big... When you say ambulances, the buying of ambulances? Operating What what do you mean? Like having people staffed in the ambulances. So every time there's a car accident, 
and the ambulance is sent to go and pick up the person in the road, that ambulance, all the costs incurred increase. They show an an extra boost to GDP. Okay. So the more car accidents there are, that will actually impact the GDP in a positive way. But it doesn't say anything about the destruction, you know, cars being one of the most dangerous tools <laughs> humanity has ever invented. And, you know, here we are, you know, we get our license at 17 and we never have another checkup until we, <laughs> you know. so we're wielding these incredibly dangerous tools and they're increasing GDP. So there's been a number of people who've said, we can't rely on GDP as an indicator of progress. And there's other tools like the Genuine Progress Indicator, GPI, that actually measures the externalities that GDP doesn't measure. And an externality is any time on a balance sheet, any time a, a company would be contributing to pollution of the environment or adding to air pollution, that's typically not calculated on a balance sheet. It's something that the society just, it's external to the company's profit and loss and balance sheet, but it's something that the society actually experiences as a cost, but no one's paying for that cost. And so there's other places where folks have tried to talk about progress in a different way. And the genuine progress indicator actually shows that since 1978, roughly, it's GDP has consistently gone up. But when you factor in all these externalities, the genuine progress indicators have actually stabilized or declined since 1978. So health of ecosystems, health of people, you know, Kevin, our business partner, often talks about humanity is on track to have ecocide by and essentially suicide by ecocide. We're killing so much of the life support systems around us that sustain our life, the trees, the insects, the birds, the habitat. It's a hard like <laughs> the, the bees. bees. Yes. <laughs> we need the bees to pollinate. Yeah. Poll- yeah, to pollinate yeah. our food. Yeah. Pollinate our food. If we don't have them, we're in trouble. And the government is trying to encourage people to have little beehives because they see it's a problem. But bees are very special. <laughs> there's not there's not an, another animal that does what they do. And we're destroying them. So and no one right now has an answer to what would happen if we if the bees became extinct. Yeah, we'd have to pretty quickly shift our diet. <laughs> there's like, <laughs> there's like, there's, yeah tremendous number of crops that bees pollinate and are the standard ones you find on grocery store shelves, tomatoes included. So that'd be a big diet yeah. shift. And then a lot of time. Yeah. And then this goes back to the money because you can think, okay, well, as long as I have a lot of money, somehow I'll manage. But it's like that, that very beautiful Native American proverb. I'm not getting it exactly right, but it's like, one day you will realize that you cannot eat money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the last fish has Um, been caught and the last drop of water has been drunk. Only then will the white man realize you cannot eat money. Something like that. Yes. 
I'm I'm paraphrasing too. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that quote. Yeah. And forgive me if I'm getting into something that might seem woo woo to some people, but I think one thing that needs to be noted is that we sometimes use money as a substitute for creating human bonds. Like somehow, you know, people, and there's good reason for this. This society has sometimes been very bad at taking care of all of its members. So it's not a blame thing, but money is not a substitute for a society that Mm. works. Mm. And uh, you can go through your life and think, okay, if I have enough money, I can pay people to do this. I can pay people to do that. And there's a, can be a really disconnection to all of the ways that we are interdependent where, you know, there's someone who's, you're in your car alone, but there's someone who's taking care of that road. If there wasn't a huge effort to create those roads. So even though you're in your car alone, it's actually a huge monumental societal effort that goes into those roads and the maintenance of those roads. So there's this myth of I'm alone and I just need all this money. But actually, it's like this huge interdependent web that we're in. We're all connected. Absolutely, Phoenix. And um, that's where your mindfulness practice and everything you've taught me and the others, the students and the lift partners really, really kind of helps us stay grounded through navigating all of these yeah, incredibly heartbreaking, I'll use that word again, aspects of what is broken. When we stay present with our heartbeat, when we stay present with our breath, when we stay present with the birds that are right outside our window or the greenery, it can help, I think, bring in a lot of self-care and self-compassion to hold the harm with clear, clear eyes without looking away or turning a blind eye And holding that harm helps us proactively respond in ways that actually can address that harm. Yeah. And also having, talking to people and having communities where you can, you know that you're not alone and there's other people working with you to make a better world. So it's mindfulness, time in nature, doing the things that feed your soul that can help you face what is the challenges of amazing challenges, amazing heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to leave our listeners here. We're, our next session, we're going to go into principles, the first five, and then we'll have another one on the second, the rest of them, five through 10. But these are, yeah, this, we call it the next economy because there's an existential <laughs> like crisis for humanity. If we don't, turn this ship around we're not going to have another economy you know the earth will be fine (laughs) it's just whether or not we'll be on it (laughs) so thank you for sharing all of what you're paying attention to or some of what you're paying attention to in terms of you know what's not working so that we can get on the same page to forge some real solutions yeah thank you for all the great work you're doing and the sacrifices you make to do it every day Mm. doesn't feel like a sacrifice because it's so so nourishing and yeah connected to purpose but mm. yeah well thank you listeners and i hope that this was 
supportive. Yeah, and we're just scratching the surface here. So we'd love to hear from you what additional kind of critiques you have of what's currently not working and join us for our, our live training. And we'll talk a lot more about all this together. Phoenix, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and see you soon. Yeah, see you soon. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.